Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hey, this is Kion Wolf. I'm here with Betsy Kaplan in your podcast feed saying thanks for tuning in, first of all. And please keep this podcast going by calling 1-800-584-2788 or by going to wnpr.org slash donate. That's the place where you become a member or you renew your membership. And most importantly, you keep us going. And we can't do this without you. Kion and I, along with the, the rest of our team, put on the Colin McEnroe Show every day of the week for you because we love to do this for you and we love the show as well. So give us a call, 1-800-584-2788 or go online at wnpr.org. Enjoy the show. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show. It was originally recorded on June 5th, 2018. Hello, uh, this is Colin. We're going to do a show today about tabloids. But I think before we plunge into the show, I have to sort of set a few ground rules and make a few distinctions because it's easy to blur all this stuff together. And in a lot of ways, it does legitimately blur all together. So I think we have to make some kind of distinction between tabloid newspapers uh, like the New York Post and the New York Daily News and the Philadelphia uh, Daily News. And these are I mean, Newsday, you know, and these are newspapers. They are real newspapers. They are staffed by competent and ethical journalists. Um, The way that they present news is often very flashy and splashy. And maybe they're a little bit more lurid and floral. I mean, looking over at the Daily News, it says the big headline is uh, lying down with pigs. Twisted tale of how Manhattan DA did biz with firm that was digging up dirt on Weinstein's sex accuser. All right. So they like those big headlines. They like um, uh, big headlines with very small words when possible because you can use bigger type. Dave Barry famously said that the ultimate tabloid headline was Tot Eats Goat Face. But these are, you know, this is real news for the most part. I mean, maybe they have their bad days now and again, but they're real journalists uh, and I've known some of them. And then you've got stuff like the National Enquirer and the Globe and the Weekly World News and all that stuff. And that's in a different category. That's also tabloid, you know, but uh, obviously a lot of the stuff in it is either not true or leans so heavily on spuriously or curiously obtained celebrity gossip or whatever that it's really in a kind of a different category. But then if you go to England, it gets even more complicated uh, because the Daily Mail in uh, England, the New Yorker a few years ago said it was the most influential newspaper in England, by which they meant that, first of all, it had the second biggest readership. The only readership bigger than the, the Daily Mail is the Sun. But nobody takes the Sun seriously. But the Daily Mail, because it's kind of what you might call middle market, it has far more readers. I think five times as many readers as, say, The Guardian does uh, in England. So it reaches a lot of people who kind of take it seriously. Now, it is so flawed. It's not really like the New York Daily News or the New York Post or the Philadelphia Daily News. It is so flawed that recently, I think it was last year, Wikipedia announced that you they didn't want anyone citing the Daily uh, Mail, the England's Daily Mail, in any of the articles. And they even asked their volunteers to go through and scrub out thousands of citations from the Daily Mail in previous articles. So it's simultaneously 
possibly, arguably, the most influential newspaper in Great Britain, and simultaneously so completely untrustworthy that an organization like Wikipedia really doesn't want it used as a citation for facts. Right now, we're going to talk to uh, David Saxman, George R. West, uh, Jr., Chair of Excellence in Communication and Public Affairs and Professor of Communication at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga and author of Sensationalism, Murder, Mayhem, Mudslinging, Scandals, and Disasters in 19th Century Reporting. David Saxman, welcome to our show and our conversation. Thank you very much. Many of the qualities that we associate with quote-unquote tabloid journalism today are not new. They go back at least as far in the United States as the 1830s. So give us a sense of what's happening there in early to mid-19th century America in in newspapers. Let me uh, uh, start by talking for a second about the concept of sensationalism, Mm -hmm. because a lot of what is characterized now about tabloid journalism is really the use of sensationalism. What the word tabloid means is just a size of a newspaper. It's a smaller size newspaper you can hold in your hand in the subway, but it's now used and broadened to mean a lot of other things. Sensationalism in the American press really began uh, at the turn of the century. That's 1800, Mm -hmm. in the election of 1800, with the uh, campaign of uh, President John Adams against Thomas Jefferson. In those days, the various political campaigns paid for newspapers, right? They literally uh, produced their own newspapers. The press then were openly accusing Thomas Jefferson of sleeping with his slave so that you got that level of really nasty sensationalism going all the way back to, say, 1800. To be fair, he was sleeping with his slave. And we should say that, yes, the uh, Federalist and and Republican newspapers at that time were constantly lashing uh, at each other. Um, Jefferson eventually got tired enough of that so that he uh, nudged one of his federal judges into um, instituting uh, seditious libel claims against a whole bunch of people, including people here in Connecticut, including the Connecticut Current, which uh, uh, whose case actually went all the way to the Supreme Court because they had printed something that really was untrue about Thomas Jefferson. But Thomas Jefferson, who had famously said that he would rather have newspapers and no government than government and no newspapers, actually brought a criminal prosecution or caused to be brought a criminal prosecution uh, against a newspaper because you don't like what they were writing about him. In those days, as to this, at this today, you can say anything about a public figure or a politician, true or false, and there are no limits. Now, I actually started my career with the New York Daily News as a copy boy. Mm -hmm. And in those days, the middle 60s, there were real concepts of you didn't discuss the personal life of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. People knew about the personal life of Kennedy, but it was not a topic for discussion. Back then and today, it is. These things come in and out of favor as to 
at what level of uh, attack or um, discussion of personal affairs you can do. But we now, like then, are at a time when anything you want to say about any personal, uh, any public figure is fair game. And the limits, uh, until we get to Roseanne, right? Until we get to Roseanne. Well, no, I mean, look, reckless indifference to the truth and proof of malice. I mean, just ask the National Enquirer or Gawker. You can't say just anything. I mean, you can uh, be sued pretty successfully if they can demonstrate malice or, or reckless indifference. Right. Those are those are the two exceptions. Uh, but if you put allegedly in front of things, and if it's not meant maliciously, it's just meant to raise ratings, uh, then you can get away with anything you want to say. And, um, and as you point out, de Tocqueville, coming to America in the 1830s, he saw this, he saw this in our press and thought there was something kind of fundamentally, maybe raucously American about this. Yeah, not only uh, did he like it, but he saw it as a key point of real democracy, right? Looking at democracy was a fairly new concept at that moment, and the very nature of real democracy was that level of freedom of the speech, free to say anything you wanted to publicly and in any capacity. So, you know, one of the terms that gets slung around these days is fake news, but we know that the term fake news was actually used towards the end of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, compare, uh, sometimes, I think, by uh, adherents of William, William Jennings Bryan, other people like that, complaining about that. I mean, they use the term fake news. And one thing that we know is that some of these sensationalistic publications were pretty reckless, not just in terms of personal attacks on people, but with wild claims. Talk about the great moon hoax. This is perhaps the most, you know, insane example uh, of a newspaper publishing something that was just hooey. Well, there, there have been many hoaxes through the last 200 years. People either working with newspapers or independently deciding it would be fun to create a complete hoax. And so you literally have uh, hoaxes. I mean, uh, I just recently saw a, a newer movie about P.T. Barnum, and everything that Barnum was doing, or almost everything, was a hoax, and the press loved it. Uh, so those kinds of fake stories have been going on forever. Back in, in the old days of the newspaper business, uh, it was not at all unusual on a cold Christmas night to find a story about uh, Sashwash or something else happening in some obscure place in Missouri and the, uh, the reporting of the sighting of this or, or whatever. And what it was was some lonely uh, AP reporter at 2 in the morning putting out uh, four paragraphs that everybody knew was, was fake news. So, so, so you've got, I think it was the New York Sun, um, there are a lot, as you say, lots of examples of this, but the New York Sun, you know, they published all this stuff about how there was life on the moon, and there were these certain kinds of creatures on the moon, they had these really lavish illustrations of them, lots of stories about it, and people just bought this hook, line, and sinker. Yale scientists came to New York because they wanted to see more of the documentation uh, about this. I mean, they were intellectually curious as opposed to suspicious. 
I guess, an environment in which people trusted maybe a little bit more than they do now? We didn't have ethical standards for news until the beginning of the 20th century. There were no professors of journalism. First of all, there were no professors of journalism in that century, but there were no professors of journalism arguing truth or fairness or any of the basic concepts that we have now. Those actually grow up in response to coverage of World War I, which was full of extraordinary fake news. Both sides, the Germans and the British, were producing totally fake uh, uh, stories of atrocities of each other. And depending on which side a newspaper was on in the United States, they would print the stories of those atrocities that supported the cause that they liked. This caused uh, the American Society of Newspaper Editors, I believe that's the right name, to set up the first list of ethics, the first one of which was, you know, truth and honesty. And right after that, you can't sell out to your uh, advertisers. So there is no real concept in the 19th century of that level of ethics. And frankly, at this moment, among at least half of all the press in the world, there's no such concept now either. I want to add to this conversation Andy Piasek, Connecticut historian, award-winning author, and Bridgeport native. Uh, his latest book is In Motion. Andy is here to talk about a very interesting figure in the world of tabloid history who more or less begins his career not too far from where I'm sitting. His name is Emile Govreau. I've also studied this guy a little bit. So Andy let me just quickly set the scene. So in the 1920s, um, the two newspapers in Hartford, the two major newspapers in Hartford, the Hartford Times and the Hartford Current, were respectively organs, house organs of two political parties. Uh, the Hartford Times uh, was wired up with the Democrats, and the Current, through its publisher and, and president, Charles Hopkins Clark, was a house organ for the Republican Party. Into all this steps a young guy, like a very young guy, mid-20s, uh, this guy, uh, Emil Govro, who becomes the managing editor of the Hartford Current. Andy, tell us a little bit more about this guy. Govro was a native of Connecticut, and he began his reporting career in New Haven when he was 19 years old, had not even finished high school, and did apparently such a good job that he was, as you said, hired in 1919 to be the editor of the Hartford Current. And under his leadership, which lasted only for five years, circulation increased significantly, and a lot of it had to do with the reporting that Govro oversaw. He did a lot of sort of exposés of corruption, alienated political and corporate elites in Hartford, and eventually was fired from the current in 1924. The tipping point was that he wrote articles that alienated political boss J. Henry Rohrabach, right. who was a big machine boss in Hartford at the time. And through pressure that was brought to bear on the owners of the current, uh, Govro was fired. We should say that, um, yeah, he took uh, circulation way, way uh, up, or at least 
by the standards of the time, uh, increased circulation quite a bit. And, and some of it was that kind of reporting that you're talking about. And some of it was also, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, if you look at the New Hartford Current in the 1920s during the Govro period, it looks like a broadsheet that's trying to be a tabloid. Uh, one of the things Govro does, he'll start 18 different stories on page one. So there are these 18, they're all kind of, of, in terms of their vocabulary and imagery, kind of blaring headlines, but they're kind of small because he wants to get 18 stories onto page one. Five of them are inevitably about murders and not murders in Hartford or anywhere like that, but kind of O.J. Simpson-style murders that were happening someplace else that he thought were very uh, interesting and lurid. I mean, he was doing clickbait journalism, I would say, Andy, uh, at a time when the actual notion of a click was many, many decades away. Yes, that's right. It's sort of this uh, interesting combination, almost contradiction, between his instincts to do what a lot of, the history of journalism says is kind of the right thing to do, which is to afflict the powerful on behalf of the weak. But at the same time, always conscious of the need to sell newspapers and stories such as what you describe and packing so many of them into a very visible space is part of what the deal was all about. Kind of an interesting guy uh, in his presentation. He was described as having a large head and piercing eyes. He walked uh, with a limp. And he was, I mean, in addition, Andy, to trafficking, yes, in some lurid, tabloidy kinds of stories and maybe some hard-hitting pieces about corruption, he was somewhat interested in the cultural life of the city. And one of the things he wanted to do was talk about preserving Mark Twain's home on Farmington Avenue. And that was, uh, believe it or not, as revered as Mark Twain is now, a hundred years later, a very controversial issue. Twain was, again, someone who never shied away from speaking truth to the powerful or speaking out on issues that uh, may have alienated people in power. And there apparently was a tremendous amount of resistance to preserving the home because powerful people in Hartford did not care to preserve the memory of his association with the city. Ultimately, the campaign that Gavro was a part of was successful, and the house still is there as a kind of, I guess, a museum. It was just one more step along the way toward, regardless of the success that he was having in terms of boosting the Hercurrence visibility and circulation, that ultimately led to him being canned. Right. So we should just say that eventually Charles Hopkins Clark, the president and publisher of The Current, uh, decides he's had enough of this guy. He kicks him out the door. And then Govro really gets into the tabloids uh, of New York, kind of at a time when the tabloid form is really solidifying, congealing into something that we would recognize even now. Yes, he actually goes to New York City in 1924 the purposes of interviewing for a job at the New York Times meets a gentleman named Bernard McFadden, who's a very extremely wealthy owner of multiple publications, mostly magazines. I guess True Story maybe being the best known to today's audience. And he has plans to start a daily tabloid in New York City. The Daily News at that point is five years old. It was formed in 1919. William Randolph, and it has experienced tremendous success in a short period of time, William Randolph Hearst has also decided to start a tabloid in 1924, right around the time as the graphic is coming into being. That was the Daily Mirror. And so McFadden 
kind of likes the combination, apparently, of what he saw in Galbraith, because the whole thing with uh, some of Galbraith's exposés in Hartford became big enough news, so it was known, very well known among editors, publishers, magazine owners, etc. And McFadden knew very well who he was and seemed to fit exactly to be the kind of guy that he wanted to have running the uh, evening graphic. So he was hired, and he ended up staying there for five years. Again, this sort of contradiction comes into play, except that really the sensationalism and the lurid side of life that gets covered in the graphic on a regular basis, pretty much consuming most of its news hole, wins out. So the kind of expose, speaking truth to power, stepping on the toes of the powerful, all that kind of stuff, only happens in this very narrow framework. Right. So exposing corporate abuses, political corruption, all that kind of stuff, really gets pushed to the side, except unless there's some kind of angle regarding sex or violence or whatever it might be. Right. So hence the New York graphic started to obtain the nickname, the porno graphic. And then there's kind of a race to the bottom. Some of the most uh, respected names in journalism today, including Pulitzer and Hearst, uh, were part of this highly competitive environment. But once again, going after the equivalent of clicks, uh, they wound up going uh, pretty lurid. Uh, I want to thank Andy Piasek uh, very much. Before we take a break, I just want to do one little uh, footnote or a little button to the story that we've just been telling. In 1998, the Hartford Current, which has always been, you know, kind of the old gray lady of Connecticut journalism. In 1998, they hired a new editor, and his name was Brian Tulid. He came from the Philadelphia Daily News, which is a tabloid. And there was quite a bit of discussion at the time, uh, including that uh, some of the more respected reporters of the Hartford Current thought, you know what, maybe this is a good thing. I mean, we're a little bit stuffy here. Maybe we need a guy from the tabloids to shake things up. Ultimately, I think I I, I was not at the, on the current staff full-time at the time, but I was sort of there uh, writing about certain aspects of all this, ultimately was a pretty uneasy marriage with the Connecticut public. They really didn't necessarily cotton all that well to tabloid-style journalism or anything that looked like that. Tulin eventually famously hired Amy Pagnosi, uh, a former columnist for the New York Post, who wrote in a very New York Post style in her new column in the Hartford Current and raised all kinds of hell. Uh, so just sort of, you know, a way in which this uh, story comes full circle. Uh, neither Pagnosi nor Tulin ultimately lasted all that long uh, with the Hartford Current, but uh, full circle from Govro in the 20s to about 2000 when all that was unfolding. All right, we've got to take a break. We're going to talk to some people who've worked in this industry. Hey, it's Kion Wolf here with Betsy Kaplan taking a second out of your podcast. I know you thought you were totally off the hook from listening to the live fundraising, but we just want to take a second to say thanks for tuning in. And also, please help us keep this coming into your podcast feed. The number to call to be a member or renew your membership is 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. And you have lots of advantages listening to the show on podcast because we're only going to speak to you for about 20 <laughs> seconds, maybe 50 seconds, mm-hmm. unlike five minutes. So reward us with the fact that we're speaking to you less time. We're taking less time out of your enjoyment of this great show that you're listening to. Give us some support to keep these shows going, no matter how you listen to them. 1-800-584-2788 or go online at WNPR.org. 
You're listening to a rebroadcast of The Colin McEnroe Show. It was originally recorded on June 5th of 2018. And we're back. Uh, joining us now. Okay, we're going to kind of leave the world of, say, the New York Post and the New York Daily News, the Philadelphia Daily News, those kinds of tabloids where, yeah, I mean, obviously the New York Post famously has headlines like headless body in topless bar. That was a real headline, uh, I think 1982. But uh, where they are essentially covering the news as we know news. They may be sensationalizing what they cover and making pretty sensational choices. We're going to go into sort of a different kind of tabloid journalism, uh, the kind that we associate with The Globe and the National Enquirer, similar publications like that. You might throw in The Sun in England. Maybe you'd throw in The Daily Mail, although, as I said at the beginning, that one kind of straddles the line a little bit. Joining us right now is Marlise Kast-Myers, who is a former uh, undercover reporter for The Globe. That doesn't mean she was undercover in The Globe. That means that The Globe sent her into undercover situations, which she's going to tell us about, and author of the book Tabloid Prodigy, Dishing the Dirt, Getting the Gossip, and Selling My Soul in the Cutthroat World of Hollywood Reporting. Uh, Marlies Kast-Myers, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You walked into this job pretty much straight out of college. And is it true that you sort of initially thought you were applying to be, be a reporter for the Boston Globe? That kind of sums it up. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was straight out of college. I was 21, graduated a little bit early, and um, was living in L.A. at the time. I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a journalist. And my sister was attending UCLA, and I ended up using – this was – the you know, internet was fairly new, and she had access through UCLA to a job board, and Globe was hiring, was looking for some journalists. So I sent in a resume and filled out an application, and I ended up going in for an interview. And this was shortly after the death of Princess Diana, so I think they were pretty desperate at the time, and it was not – the ideal situation to get in at that phase. But three years later, (laughs) I was still there. You know, you mentioned the death of Princess Diana. So this is one of the moments where, although there is an undying appetite for this kind of news, there is a new way of talking about this kind of news. There was a sense that the paparazzi who were pursuing pictures on behalf of publications like The Globe might have contributed to the death of Princess Diana in the form of the high-speed chase that was kind of going on. Um, Mm -hmm. So suddenly you've got an industry which it might have been regarded as sort of a guilty pleasure. Maybe people didn't admit that they actually bought it at the supermarket checkout counter, uh, took it home and read it cover to cover. Now there's sort of people asking some slightly more hostile questions about this. Definitely. The whole industry has changed so much uh, since I was involved. I was in there from 97 to 2001. So it was completely different. I mean, we we had a Rolodex of, of sources and we had a file room. We, you know, at that point we were going out to actually hunt for the stories. We would hit the streets and travel quite a bit. Today, everyone can technically be a paparazzi with their phones and the whole industry is completely different from when I first got in there. All right. So um, when we say hitting the streets, um, I think we need to talk a little bit about some of the kinds of stories that you would do. You would go on undercover, be places that you weren't supposed to be. For example, William Shatner's wedding. Yes, that's correct. This was one of my first stories. I hadn't been there too long at Globe, and I just felt completely lost. There was not a lot of direction. In fact, a lot of times you would walk into your office and on your desk would be a lead sheet, and it would say celebrity A, 
you know, in a relationship with Celebrity B, confirm, question mark. And you would have 24 hours to go out and prove if the story was true or not. And if you couldn't, the lead was killed, basically. So we had heard that William Shatner was getting married. We knew the location. This was something that the editors really felt they should be investing in. So they hired a team of six paparazzi and brought in six of the tabloid journalists to try and infiltrate the wedding. And because I was new and I was the rookie, they said, why don't you just go watch how the professionals work? Don't get involved. And so we were at a hotel, which was our our base camp, while the wedding was going on. And one by one, everyone would try and get in. And they would either have a fake name on the, the wedding list or they would try and go in from pay off the neighbors of the house and try and shoot from photographs from that. No one could get in. And at the last minute, I said, I'm going in. I have an idea. And they said, you're not supposed to go in. You're just supposed to watch how we work. And I said, no, I have an idea. So I called room service. I got a glass of wine. I grabbed some high heels. I kind of messed up my hair so I looked like a drunk wedding guest. And I went around the property and kind of squatted in the bushes as if I was <laughs> drunk wedding guest. And the security from the wedding saw me and said, what are you doing? There are paparazzi everywhere. Get back in there. <laughs> and so they actually threw me into the wedding. Mm-hmm. And while I was in there, I was able to get the photographs, the details, the menu, et cetera, et cetera. And so that kind of solidified a very <laughs> long position with the tablets. Right. A legend was born, the Marley's cast oh, uh, Myers a legend. So <laughs> a, a lot of this, like in terms of, you know, that celebrity A is hooking up with celebrity B, mm-hmm. confirm or deny, one of the ways that you guys would do this is to cultivate a network of sources who are kind of like low-level people, ranging from limo drivers to bartenders to, I guess, hookers in some instances, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there there is like this whole world of people who, for a certain amount of money, will tell what they know and, and may actually know something. Yeah, we, we had a really large database of sources. So the goal was to never come face-to-face or, or connect with the celebrity this, themselves, but the people around them. So from bartenders to hotel doormen to receptionists to personal assistants to nannies, there was a pretty large database that we would also be fed stories, or if we heard something was going on, we would circle back with the sources at that time. And you know, it was checkbook journalism, so that it was kind of the benefit that the tab had over the mainstream media is that they would pay for their stories. So it could be said that you were brought up this way. Yeah, you, know, you were brought up uh, by uh, a pretty strict Christian family, missionaries, mm-hmm. ministers. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you didn't necessarily know what you were walking into. So is that one of the reasons you're not working for the GLOW? Because ultimately this kind of wasn't your thing? It's interesting because when I spoke with your producer the, the other day, I started floating through my book and kind of revisiting it. And it was really this out-of-body experience. Like, I wanted to go back in time and and just say, what are you doing with your life, you know? Uh, I just, I'm so far from who that was, that person. And for me, it was it was really an ethical battle. But I think at the end, I was always able to justify it because a lot of people believe that we would sit around and make up headlines and fabricate stories, but we didn't. I mean, as you mentioned to your previous guest, there could be such legal ramifications behind that. So we had to have, you know, three sources on every story and our sources would take lie detector tests and we had to have documentation to support everything we said. So I felt like I could justify what I was doing because I was basically unveiling the truth. And at the same time, I had this adrenaline rush that came 
through it. But, you know, I, I explained that it was really a mentality that was difficult to comprehend because I was almost pure and polluted at the same time. And, you know, my identity was lost in between these these two worlds. So ultimately, I went full circle and just realized this isn't what I want to be doing. There's a way in which it does seem as though there are stories in the tabloid world that never die. You know, in the conventional newspaper world, I would have to have a pretty good story about or just completely paradigm-shifting story about, I don't know, Tom Cruise or the John JonBenet Ramsey case uh, in order to get it into the New York Times. There's a way in which, though, there are, there are staples kind of of this world, right, where like any story about certain topics is almost inherently interesting? I would say so. And not just the topics, but the people themselves. It's so interesting because... Back in the day, being famous was really a byproduct of talent, right? Mm -hmm. But now it's almost a byproduct of luck or sometimes even failure. Fame now is a concept. So when you look at, okay, what does it take to get on the cover of a publication? Or the public is the, the consumer is the one who is defining who gets to be famous. It's a concept that we're, that we're choosing. We're, we're the ones, I would say, who we're deciding what that looks like. Right. You know, as we move towards digital, click-driven journalism begins to sort of um, set up a kind of vicious cycle there. The stuff that you click on gets played more prominently. You click on it more, it gets played more prominently. And we are kind of chasing our own most sort of, uh, I guess, least common denominator tastes. And there are some celebrities who kind of make it hard for you. I mean, I, I saw Matt Damon being interviewed in a really interesting documentary about paparazzi. And he said, you know, he goes, basically, I don't make it very interesting for them. Yeah, You know, I, they think he's a boring guy. He's got a wife and kids. You know, he doesn't go out much. He doesn't do anything interesting. Every once in a while, they need some pictures to just update their shots of me, their their standard, you know, B-roll uh, shots of me. But And there's a way in which I guess you probably thought back in the day, well, there are some celebrities who seem almost kind of willing to play this game just to be famous. Yeah. And I talk a little bit about that in Tabloid Prodigy, where it was almost this symbiotic relationship where we did have celebrities who would call us and say, OK, I'm going to be at this restaurant at this time with this person. And then we could get a shot of them and they would be sort of back in the limelight. Then there were other celebrities where they were completely off limits. Mm -hmm. We, Or I guess our editor had, you know, certain agreement with them that they were untouchable. It's interesting how it all comes together, even today. There is this kind of notion of catch and kill, right? I mean, tabloids mm -hmm. are, in a very contradictory way, famous for going after stories that nobody else would ever go after and do anything to get those stories, including, mm -hmm. you know, in your case, like join a gym that the celebrities go to just to see if you can pick up anything. But they also have a reputation occasionally for sitting on a story that another kind of journalistic organization might actually be interested in. So uh, did you have sort of a specific experience of that kind of thing? We had some celebrities that we were not allowed to ever report on. So I had a couple headlines that I ran across and or a story that I uncovered. And I would go into my editor's office and say, OK, you're not going to believe what I just found. This is going to be major. And they say, no, kill it. It's mm. done. We have an agreement with them. That was always challenging because I thought, OK, well, where, why are we drawing the line? If I'm doing my job and I'm able to uncover this story, why is this celebrity safe? Marlies Kastmeyers, great to talk to you. Uh, her book is Tabloid Prodigy, Dishing the Dirt, Getting the Gossip, and Selling My Soul in the Cutthroat World of Hollywood Reporting. Uh, we've got one more segment to go. We'll be back right after the proverbial this. Is it true? 
You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show. It was originally recorded on June 5th of 2018. Legless torso not involved in producing this show. Show producer Josh Nalea kidnapped by dolphin with human arms. Kion Wolf revealed to be actual wolf. Amanda Fish killed by shaved ape baby. Part of Bill Curry played by chimp head grafted onto human body. And now... Back to Colin. Yes, we're talking about the exciting world of tabloids. So there's ways in which the worlds of, of, I don't know, kind of standard political journalism, or at least the kind of journalism that affects uh, political futures, have uh, occasionally, uh, maybe even more and more frequently, overlapped with the kind of reporting that goes on uh, at tabloids. Uh, Joining us right now is Lachlan Cartwright, senior reporter for the Daily Beast and formerly the executive editor of the National Enquirer. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about what happens when some of these tabloid executives have cozy relationships with certain politicians. Lachlan Cartwright, welcome to our show. G'day, Colin. Good to be on. Some of the stories, and I can't quote chapter and verse, but I think some of the early Bill Clinton stories back in the 90s, maybe the John Edwards story, some of these stories actually do start out in the tabloid universe. And I do remember back in the 90s, maybe it was Jennifer Flowers. I can't even remember which story. But, you know, the Inquirer would break it. And then people like me who work for conventional newspapers would go, ah, well, that's the Inquirer. You know, <laughs> that's not real. But a lot of these stories, have wound, they wind up crossing over from tabloid to mainstream. Yeah, that's true. And, and there's a number of reasons uh, for that. Probably chief among them is the tabloids pay for information. They have tip lines that are staffed by editors. They advertise for um, information and, um, and they pay for information, which um, some of the mainstream outlets turn their nose down at. So I, I broke a story uh, regarding uh, TMZ, which ran on the Daily Beast, which was a, uh, an investigation we did here into the links between Harvey Levin, uh, who runs TMZ, and your audience may be familiar with him. He also fronts the TV show on Fox, is a former lawyer. The links between Harvey Levin and Donald Trump and um, how their relationship worked uh, both ways in the lead up to the election. And I'll give your audience just a, a few examples. After the Access Hollywood tape broke, TMZ began running uh, exclusive after exclusive, and I use that term loosely. Um, they were running stories very favorable to Trump. In one case, they ran a story highlighting Bill Clinton's um, disparaging remarks about women that Trump claimed uh, Clinton made to him on the golf course a claim that Trump repeated. Um, they also ran a story which highlighted a former Miss U- Teen USA uh, saying uh, from a, a weird interview in a car, um, she was saying that she never had a bad experience with Trump. Now, uh, through our reporting, multiple staffers, both current and former TMZ staffers, told us that there were phone calls going on between Trump and Harvey Levin and that tips were being passed uh, back and forth. And in one case, there was one accuser of Donald Trump. You you might remember this situation. She said that Donald Trump assaulted her on an aeroplane. He lifted the armrest up and groped her. Our um, sources within the TMZ newsroom at the time said Harvey Levin was on a mission to discredit this woman. He was convinced she was lying. He personally called airlines uh, to try and um, figure out if these armrests did not lift off at the time. Now, in fairness to TMZ, they did confirm that the unlist did go up and they did end up in that case uh, running a story. 
But again, it shows you the closeness of the, of the two men and, and the payoff for Harvey Levin, your audience will probably ask, well, how, did it, how did it work for him? Well, he scored one of Donald Trump's first TV interviews for a Fox TV show called Objectified, where it was a very soft interview, Donald Trump and him touring around and chatting, shooting the breeze. That uh, show was then parlayed into a whole series that Harvey Levin got called Objectified. And also Harvey Levin got a meeting with Trump in the Oval Office, which has previously been reported. But our sources say in that meeting, Harvey Levin asked Donald Trump to um, help with getting Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli leader, to appear on his uh, Objectified talk show. And in actual fact, um, it worked because the first episode of that show, which you, your viewers can see online, your audience, sorry, can see online, their first guest is Benjamin Netanyahu. How is this different from cozy relationships that have existed in the past? The press agreed uh, not to report on, on uh, FDR's illness, but I think maybe a little bit more relevantly, uh, the press knew an awful lot more about John F. Kennedy uh, than, uh, than it was willing to report. They sat on those kinds of stories about a, a man who was both physically very ill and sexually very out of control. There were very close friendships between, say, the, the Kennedy family and Ben Bradley, the legendary editor of the Washington Post. How different is this from that? I would say the reaction to this story has shown to me that uh, the public at large really aren't aware of the close relationships some of these media proprietors and in this case a media personality have with uh, you know someone as powerful as the president as Donald Trump um, this story we had a huge reaction to it in terms of traffic and just in terms of people emailing in about it and I, and I think people don't really appreciate how close uh, some of these media executives are with the leaders who make very powerful decisions and how um, the coverage is is spun. As one staffer told us, um, TMZ went from running stories about the Kardashians and about Britney Spears uh, to running stories about voter fraud. Uh, and one staffer described it as a propaganda uh, operation that took off just before the election. A num number of other staffers said they, they left following the election just because the atmosphere in the newsroom became so toxic um, as they continue to publish more and more pro-Trump stories. So the Kardashian stories were probably more likely to be, had a better chance of being true than the voter fraud stories. <laughs> There's a little sort of irony. Lachlan Cart Cartwright, thank you so much for talking to us about this. Lachlan Cartwright, a senior reporter at the Daily Beast and the former executive editor of the National Enquirer. I just want to end by saying, um, why are we doing a show about tabloids? Well, I, I said a lot of things uh, at the beginning about this too, about the ways in which they really did with their mixture of fact fiction and attitude set the stage for something like Fox News. The other reason is that as we're alluding to, tabloid journalism, or these big tabloid companies anyway, um, do something that journalism typically doesn't do. And it is called catch and kill. Uh, we had the reporting of Ryan Farrow talking about how David Pecker, uh, chairman and CEO of American Media Incorporation, which publishes the National Enquirer, also very, very close with Donald Trump. And uh, Farrow uh, wrote about the fact that Pecker obtained the exclusive rights to a story involving a possible former mistress of Donald Trump for the purpose of killing the story, for the purpose of not running the story, paying the person for his or her story with the intention of uh, using that as, as a form of hush money. That's something that doesn't happen anywhere else in, in journalism, and it's something that certainly doesn't particularly help the American public very much. Bye. 